Hi, Stephanie here. I am an entrepreneur, lobbyist, wife, mother, book lover, and political junkie. I think gender equality is still a work in progress in our homes, our workplaces, and our politics. And I love to learn, especially from other women. So I started Women Don't Do That, a podcast and blog to talk about issues women care about today and to inspire us to do whatever it is we think we can't do. Dr. Julie Caffley is a dynamic leader with a passion for equity and inclusion. As the Executive Director of Catalyst Canada, she uses her expertise in public policy and higher education to drive positive change in the workplace. With a PhD from the University of Ottawa and a track record of success as a writer and speaker, Julie is a dedicated advocate for women in leadership and a tireless champion for diversity. I can't wait for you to dive in and hear this episode with Julie about where we're at in the workplace for women and where we need to go, how do we get there, and lots of good advice for you. Let's dive in. Welcome, Julie. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks so much for joining me on this freezing cold day. It's like minus 41 right now in Ottawa, where we live. I I'm often to having to translate. I work with a, a global company now, so I'm always having to translate the Celsius to Fahrenheit. And I think sometimes they don't believe me when I tell them how cold it is. <laughs> They're like, I can't imagine. What does life look like for you right now? Oh, great question. Um, so I just got back. I was in Toronto for the week. Our head office for Catalyst is in Toronto. Last week, I was actually in New York, which is where our global head office is. So I live in, in Chelsea, Quebec. So we're in a, a snow belt outside of Ottawa. And it's absolutely freezing cold, as you mentioned. Um, <laughs> I have um, a husband and two boys who are at home. They're 17 and 19. So they're a little bit less interested. My eldest just left on a holiday to Mexico. My youngest is just off at Sejap this morning. For free time, I love to cross-country ski. We live in Gatineau Park, so it's just amazing. I love to do yoga. And um, yeah, I just, uh, life is life is really good. I'm five months into a new job, so it's a huge learning curve and so much to learn. So I find I'm uh, I'm tired at the end of the week. It's Friday, so I find it's, um, we're filming this on Friday. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I am full from my week because it's uh, just like a great learning curve. I'm having the same feeling. <laughs> you're definitely not alone. Uh, I feel like also when, when you're at the end of January for Canadians who live in like very cold and, and wintry parts of the country, it's just a slog, right? And like we start to just be like, the only way we can actually make it through this is that the spring is coming and we know it's coming. <laughs> yeah. What do they say? 722 days in January? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. My parents are in Florida and they were um, complaining about how it was cold. And I was like, nope, like we're not having that conversation. <laughs> Just completely different. What motivates you to live your best life? What motivates me? Well, um, I'm definitely motivated by my family. Um, my family um, comes first. I've got these two amazing boys and watching them come into themselves is super motivating. I like to say that all the boys in my house are feminists, which is really kind of cool. And I don't know if they've been forced to be or they just, and I, I think they, they were initially forced and now they naturally are. Like it might have been they want and now they're choosing that. And that's super cool to see. They're both, um, both of my boys are, activists they call things out they're bold and they um 
represent voices that aren't always heard, marginalized voices. And so that's when you get your kids get to that stage, you're kind of like, wow, um, I've done something pretty cool. Um, and then I guess the other thing is, is really our mission. And, and in terms of this job that I have now at Catalyst, you know, I can, it's the first time in my life where I can really feel like it's my vocation. And I think so few people mm. get to live their vocation. And um, when I think of the the men and the women that I meet every day um, who are such advocates for gender equity, for intersectionality. Um, we had our, our board of advisors meeting this week in Toronto and there were you know, 12 CEOs sitting around the table who genuinely put their reputation, their viewpoints, everything on the line in terms of you know, how much of a priority this is for them. So that's pretty, pretty amazingly motivating every single day. The team I work with at Catalyst also, like it's just, um, it's really just a, a really fun time in my life right now with this new role. Oh, that's so amazing. It's, it's so amazing. When I worked with another leader earlier in my career, she talked about vocation too. And it, it's amazing that when you can say that, right, because lots of Lots of the time we're slugging and I'm sure you're still slugging, but to enjoy it or feel really motivated is great. As a mom of two girls, I can say I appreciate you raising feminist boys. <laughs> I definitely I'm often shocked at some of the things that my kids come home with that has been said to them or done to them at school that you think by now some of those things would be changing. But so many of the issues that we would have seen are continuing to permeate today which just talks about the work left to be done. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, you kind of think about the things that have made a difference or that that connect when when you're raising kids because you overanalyze so many things about raising them, frankly, and especially during times of a pandemic and just all that we've been living through. And I was speaking to someone just yesterday about the fact that I always encouraged I, I might even say forced, but I, I really strongly encourage my boys to always every single birthday party when they were kids to invite at least two to three girls. And it sounds like a silly thing and something really inconsequential. But in the end, um, it enabled them to have these amazing friendships with with young women and with girls that made it that made there not be this disconnect between boys and girls. And it mm -hmm. made it just that they were part of their friend group and it was fun. And I think, you know, when you talk about gender equity, that's kind of what you want, right? It's kind of that, you know, you want there to just be this mutual respect that's that's profound and that's just natural and that it's not any sense of awkwardness. So when they turned, you know, 13 and 14, um, you know, yes, they started, you know, being interested in having, you know, emotions for, for other people, but they also, you know, just had this genuine respect and friendship. And really, I think that that's actually pretty important in terms of what we're all we're talking about in terms of gender equity and, and understanding those who are, who are different from us in any way. Mm, I love that. That's a great parenting tip for those, especially with younger ones, right? Like to ingrain it when, they, when they're young. That's, uh, that's great a great thing for us to be thinking about. You have had a really interesting career path. Can you talk a little bit about like how you got to the position you are today at Catalyst? Yeah, absolutely. So I started off, I studied at the University of Ottawa and I studied, I from, from the time I was probably five or six, I wanted to be a primary school teacher and mm -hmm. I would line up my teddy bears and my dolls and I would talk to them in my bedroom. And that was really, I, you know, there's a lot of teachers in our family and I really wanted to be a teacher. And um, so I went and did my BA and my B.Ed. And um, 
I did my, um, my time in the classroom and I have to admit, and this is hard to say, but I really found the staff room to be pretty discouraging. Um, I found it to be a place and it was probably the time that I was there that there was, you know, difficult relations and, you know, teachers have very, very difficult roles, but I found it difficult. And I, I thought, you know, I saw so many teachers who were doing that for 30 or 40 years. And I simply just couldn't imagine, you know, doing that <laughs> for so long. Yes. And so I was really fortunate. I got a job at the University of Ottawa doing student recruitment and student recruitment. We um, traveled right across Canada and also internationally promoting the university to prospective students. And it was so much fun. And it was just a fam fabulous job. I um, did a bit of a public relations outreach fundraising role within the Faculty of Engineering where then we focused a lot of on women in STEM, and that was a huge priority as well. But I remember I was um, eight months pregnant with my first uh, boy, and I was standing in an auditorium full of, you know, 400 high school students. And, you know, often in my speech, them I'd say, I remember being where you are, and it's a confusing time. And I looked at them, and I'm like, they're looking at me being eight months pregnant and saying, she has no idea what we're living, and she cannot be, you know, she doesn't get it at all. And so at that point, I realized that I needed to have an adult job, and I needed to, to, to leave student recruitment as much as I loved it. And uh, so and so I did. And I, I took a relatively, I had different opportunities, actually, within the university first in, in communications and strategic enrollment management. And then um, my final two roles at the University of Ottawa were as chief of staff uh, to the past two presidents at the University of Ottawa. That was uh, first Judy Patsy and then Alan Rock. Those were amazing experiences and I learned so much and it just it was such a, a privileged position to be able to advance strategic priorities for the president and to be there their ear and to be um, able to support them in their roles. Um, two very different leaders and two very inspiring leaders. And because of all of that, um, you know, Alan Rock in particular was the first non-academic president of the university. And there was really interesting um, things that I observed around governance and leadership of universities. And that's when I started to do my PhD. And um, it was focused on, my, my master's thesis was focused on organizational change in universities. And my thesis um, focused on the unsuccessful mandates of uh, university presidents. And so when a university president is signed on, typically they sign on for, well, for five years. When they're not finishing that five-year term, um, trying to better understand why not. And so that was fascinating and did some amazing research. There was a, an equity and diversity angle to that as well. And, you know, I was kind of halfway through my PhD um, during Alan's term and realized that to kind of finish it, I needed to leave the university environment. It was, you know, living it and breathing it and writing about it and reading about it was a little bit too much. And I had uh, had the opportunity to help Alan kind of onboard as university president. And, and then I went off to the public policy forum where I was for a decade. Um, and that, again, was just an amazing um, organization and, and a, just a fabulous role, really uh, building bridges between um, leaders from different sectors and really um, getting at very complex policy issues and bringing people together to try to find solutions. And my very first project there was actually focused on innovation in the resource sector. And I was so intimidated by it because it was such a complex issue and I had no background in that area. And, you know, we did research, we brought the right people into the room. And, you know, it was really interesting because the, the outputs, the outcomes of that research paper was actually focused on 
the importance of diversity in those organizations, the importance mm. of telling the story of the resource sector, you know, a lot of things that I was actually very comfortable and confident speaking about. And, um, and, you know, I was in rooms with CEOs of, um, of mining companies, of oil and gas, with indigenous leaders, with chiefs, with, you know, so many different um, and inspiring individuals with government as well, and really kind of getting at the complexities around the sector. So that was amazing. I had my um, 10 year anniversary um, at PPF during the pandemic. Mm. And I feel bad because it was actually at that 10 year anniversary party where I went, you have to leave 10 years is too long, you become, you know, um, too much associated with one organization, people don't see you elsewhere. So I left kind of shortly after that. And I went to the Digital Research Alliance of Canada, which was a brand new startup organization uh, focused in the uh, digital infrastructure ecosystem, uh, really complex role. And um, unfortunately, I was only there for a year. It was an amazing opportunity to, to help build an organization from the ground up. Um, but Catalyst came knocking at the door and um, it uh, it was really a no-brainer for me because this was a dream job, a dream opportunity. And um, I kind of leapt at the opportunity. Um, I, I've always done DEI work off the side of my desk. It's always been a passion project. It's been a part of my research. It's been a part of every single role that I've had, but it's never actually been an actual part of my role per se, or, you know, not nothing more than, you know, 15 or 20% of my role. And uh, so the idea of, you know, building inclusive workplaces for organizations and uh, working on gender equity issues, inter intersectionality issues on a regular basis um, was really something, you know, I, I love to do and was just so delighted when I was chosen to be the executive director for Canada. So that's kind of where we're at. I love that. There's so many interesting pieces along the way. And I hear a lot of you like taking chances and, you know, trying something new and also saying yes to opportunities. If what advice would you give to somebody who needs a change in their career, wants to level up? I think, you know, there's comfort in staying in an organization. I was at the University of Ottawa for 14 years and especially being in the president's office, you knew who to call, you know, you were able to do your work so easily and so quickly and so efficiently because of the relationships that you'd built and the knowledge of how the organization worked. Similarly, at the public policy forum, it had been 10 years and, um, you know, things become a little bit easy and um, not not easy is probably the wrong word, but they they become, you know, like they become comfortable. Exactly. Comfortable, for sure. And so I think, you know, there's a word in French that it's not really the same in English. And I love it more in French. It's called osé, you know, the word osé. So that the idea of of daring, of of reaching out, of doing those things that uh, make you feel uncomfortable, frankly, and um, and really move you forward. And I think, um, you know, and I have to say, particularly as women, you know, we do have um, a friend of mine, um, Carlin Purcell, talks. She doesn't talk about the imposter syndrome, but she talks about imposter moments where we have moments where we question ourselves. And um, I've had such great opportunities by by actually kind of taking a deep breath and approaching that person, or, or reaching out in an email, or or making that tie, or or saying something, frankly, that I that I really believed in, that I might have felt nervous of saying, and um, I think that you know people will will forgive authenticity if you're you know wrong about it, and I think you know always having that level of humility and and um, 
and authenticity to to actually just move forward and and do something like that. So I really would like what you shared about being comfortable. I often say to people, if there are moments you should check your gut and something might not be right for you, but if the only reason you're saying no is because you're scared, then you should do it anyways. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like, yeah, I waver between like, no, don't trust your gut. Like I'm not saying that, <laughs> but it's like, there are pieces of it you need to set aside because absolutely, then you'll always be, be held back. As we dive into this conversation, you know, we have listeners all over the world and we hear EDI, like equity, diversity and, diversity and inclusion thrown around a lot. What, what do they mean? You know what, if you were to break it down to the simplest level, I think it is inclusion. I think it is allowing people to be their authentic selves, whatever that might be. So we all bring multiple layers to every conversation, to our workplaces, to our families, um, in terms of, you know, where we come from, where we you were, you know, what our parents are like and their experiences, whether they went to school or whether they didn't, um, you know, whether our family, you know, I, I came from a family where my parents were divorced. And so that's part of my, you know, I, my uh, husband lives with a disability, you know, like we, we all bring these things that and many of those things are are invisible. Um, and of course, there there's visible differences as well. But I think it's that whole idea of inclusion, um, and how we can bring our authentic selves without judgment to any experience that we're living. I, I would say that's kind of at the heart of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Mm, that's a great explanation. Thank you. As we dive into some of these topics a little bit, I would love to hear about some of your research related to university presidents. And I know you did some work in particular related to women, which is, of course, of interest to us on the podcast. So can you talk about your research findings? Absolutely. So of course, with PhD research, you need something that's that's unique that you're bringing to the table. And I was really interested in what makes a university president successful. And that became very complex to understand because in a sense, a university president is such a unique role. Um, you will never, you will not find one university president in Canada that is fully appreciated and admired by everyone within their institution. No. And I think one of the complexities of that particular role is that if you look at all of the stakeholders that a university has, there's really a definition, different definition of what is the actual role of that leader. So, you know, if you talk to a student, if you talk to a faculty member, if you talk to a union or a donor or a sports leader or, you know, anything, a community member, everyone has a different view of what the role of the university president is. And as I was beginning my PhD, there was this trend um, that is actually re has has reduced quite a bit, but around these university presidents arriving, doing a, you know, sometimes six months on the job, sometimes four years on the job, but really ending before that first mandate. And uh, from what I'd learned, um, many of those university presidents um, actually had impact, had more impact once they built trust and developed good relationships in their first mandate. So those, the, the length of the tenure, especially in a slow moving organization, such as a university with really complex governance, pro governance processes, it was really important that they, they finished that term. 
And so what I did is I interviewed um, those presidents who had unfinished terms. So I kind of looked at it from the opposite way to understand what had gone wrong. And, you know, I have huge, huge, huge respect for anybody who takes on this role. And, and frankly, huge respect for these, these individuals with these unfinished mandates as well. Um, because you see, you know, my, my research highlighted many factors around, you know, a disconnect between the board and the president or a lack of communication, um, a misunderstanding on the perspective of the board in terms of how universities work and the complexities of, of universities. You saw some universities where there would actually be a bit of um, a, uh, a leader who would main, become a faculty member afterwards, remain a faculty member, and actually almost have this silent presidency where they were still kind of, you know, influencing and, and making things difficult um, for the, the incoming university president. So there's all sorts of different things that were quite concrete that repeated themselves in so many of these situations. And of course, you know, I don't want to take all fault away from the university presidents with these shortened mandates, but there were other factors <laughs> that really um, influenced their, their shortened tenure. And um, so that was really interesting. I actually presented um, my full PhD uh, without having discussed diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I was really grateful to one of my, my um, committee members who said, uh, go back. You know, this is, there's, there's too much of a story here to be told. And so what happens in the role of university president is um, at the, we're at about 30% of university presidents who are currently women. At that time, it was lower than that. It was anywhere between about 18 and 25%. So they're underrepresented in terms of their role as university president, and yet they're really highly overrepresented in their shortened tenures. So what we're finding is, um, frankly, a level of unconscious bias, and certainly in times of crisis, where these um, these women were, were hired or these racialized leaders were hired as university leaders, and... When things got difficult, um, in many cases, their boards, frankly, didn't stand behind them and didn't support them during those difficult times. And so for me, it's a really, really interesting story around unconscious bias um, and around um, many other kind of academic theories related to, to leadership. Um, many of these women, I was actually moderating a panel of uh, women university leaders in Nova Scotia at one point. There was five uh, women who were there and we were talking about their experience um, as university presidents, and 100% of them, every single woman on the panel, had actually followed an unfinished tenure of a male president. So they were brought in as the relationship builders to fix things so that the academic term is a glass cliff, that they're brought in to fix organizations um, after they've gone through a difficult time. So there's definitely a, you know, a gender equity um, lens to that. You know, there, there are things that are looking up. One of my... Um, the best practices in this area is at Harvard University, um, and Harvard, of course, has just hired um, uh, their, uh, you know, black uh, woman uh, university president. And you know, I think a lot of university universities look at that and say, "Oh, wow, you know, they're lucky they're Harvard." But when you actually look at it, they had a very tangible and a very um, intentional strategy that led to that a decision that was just made. So I think that. You know, in universities in particular, and, and all organizations, frankly, we need to move beyond good intentions, and we need to focus on clear strategies, metrics, and actually 
you know, concrete things to advance the the um, systemic racism and sexism that's that exists in these institutions. I like what you shared about the Harvard piece about how you had to be intentional, right? When you recognize, let's say, issues of conscious bias, doing the training and putting in um, the plans, which we'll get into more in depth as we talk about your work at Catalyst. One of the things that might be interesting to listeners is if they go back to the very first episode of this podcast, um, Vianne Timmons, who you probably know, was our first guest. And so I'll throw that uh, interview in the show notes. So if you want to hear from a university president about um, her experience, uh, you can get that there. Let's jump into Catalyst. Can you tell us a little bit about the mission? You know, what do you hope to achieve at Catalyst? Absolutely. So Catalyst has been around for 60 years. It's a global nonprofit organization, and it's really about creating inclusive workplaces for women and for everyone. Um, And, you know, our roots are definitely um, in women because it started 60 years ago before all of these issues were frankly popular or discussed. (laughs) And um, it's an organization that focuses on research. We have a really, really strong research infrastructure who does um, some, you know, a lot of deep research and a lot of very timely research as well on, on a range of issues focusing on workplaces. So we support over um, 500 corporations globally um, in helping uh, these corporations to advance their their DEI strategies in Canada, about 200 corporations that we're supporting. And um, so we really develop really tangible and pragmatic and practical tools, research, um, learning opportunities, um, you know, in person or online. We offer, you know, consulting services. We have all sorts of a range of of support services for these um, organizations that we support on a regular basis. So I think each of those relationships is actually quite unique. And that's what I find so fascinating is we have organizations who are just beginning their diversity, equity and inclusion uh, journey. And some who have been at this for, you know, 30 and 40 years and are doing all sorts of amazing things. So we like to highlight and share the best practices Um, honor and award those who are really, really doing well. And we also, you know, we're not an organization that that calls out bad behavior. So if you're, as long as you're on the path, we're happy to be on the path with you. And wherever you want to go in your, in your very early stages, we're just going to support you. And what is amazing is Catalyst has so much experience um, over these past 60 years. So they're really able to say, you know, this is not the best state forward, you know, in your early stages, perhaps, you know, here are four or five options that you might want to consider. And it's really um, a supportive, we, um, each of our, our organizations has uh, a relationship manager that kind of works with them on a regular basis to say, you know, what about this? Or have you seen this tool? Or how can we help to integrate this into your LMS system and, and really supporting organizations um, as they need it um, to advance their DEI uh, journey? That sounds very interesting. I was thinking one of the questions I was going to ask you is like, if if there's a leader listening who thinks, oh, we need to do that and doesn't know where to start, where do they start? But it sounds like going to Catalyst is the place to start. Um, and I appreciate how you talked about how you help at the very beginning stages or if people have been doing it for a really long time. Um, on top of that, I would say for folks, it sounds like, especially given some of the research that you do, which, which you have shared with me and we'll talk about it in a minute, is that, um, 
you know, following you on social media or uh, joining if you have a newsletter, those types of things, um, then people can stay up to date on what the latest information is. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, following me on social media for sure. Um, and also catalyst.org where you can sign up to our newsletters and information and learn more. We do have information on our website that is for supporters only, but we have a full range of information that is um, that is much broader than that. Okay. I'll, I'll include that the website in uh, the show notes. So if people are interested in signing up your newsletter, they'll, they'll know where to find you. Can you talk more about the state of diversity and inclusion in the workplace uh, right now? Yeah, absolutely. It's so complex and there's there's so many things that are going on right now. Um, I, I'm going to start with some research that came out just before the holidays. Um, we came out with a piece talking about performative um, measures related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we did a survey of, of a huge number of people, 14,000 people, and um, including um, a Canadian cohort. And basically 75% of our respondents said that they actually don't believe the racial equity policy of their organizations. So, you know, many leaders, you know, have been talking about George Floyd for the past three years, have been really engaging on these issues. But have they actually gone beyond mentioning George Floyd in a speech or talking about the fact that this matters to them? Have they created a Black employee resource group? Have they actually turned their behaviors into action? Has there been learning within the organization? So the employees that we surveyed are basically saying, we don't believe it, you know, and this is more and more, um, you know, and I think especially with a younger cohort, um, people want to work for an organization where they believe in their values, where they believe that they um are, are walking the talk essentially. And so this uh, really, I think is, um, is an important piece of work in terms of saying, you know, our employees are seeing this as performative. So you've got to do more, you've got to move beyond me on the words and you've got to actually implement um, a strategy with metrics. And I, I often say, you know, if um, you want to drive sales in an organization, you develop a strategy and you, you know, do very concrete things to advance you know, increasing your sales in an organization. Well, with diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, you're not going to have a celebrate sales day as we often do, you know, right. organizations will celebrate International Women's Day or Black History Month. Well, what are you actually doing beyond those days? And um, employees expect that you'll see um, very strong links to retention related to, you know, people being in line with the, the values of their organization. I think that's really interesting to think about because sometimes these conversations are also happening at the executive level, but if you don't talk about them or share the plans or share that you're doing stuff on them, people just think you're you're not doing them right. And so to do those things well, you need to yeah, be share, sharing it and talking about the work that you are doing. How do we get to the folks who, especially in the private sector, um, who aren't thinking about this. It's not on their radar at all. They're not part of Catalyst. Um, how do we bring those folks into uh, hearing about these issues? Yeah, so we, you know, since I've become executive director, it's been a big area of focus for me. And there are some sectors that are underrepresented. Um, some of those are, are male-dominated industries as well. So it's even more important, in my view, that they're at the table. 
one of the things that that Catalyst does that I really appreciate is, you know, everyone is at the table. So it's not an organization where, you know, as much as I, I appreciate a, a good women in leadership type event with a room full of women, you know, we actually don't have roomfuls of women. We have roomfuls of of all sorts of people that that really believe in this. So we have this really inspirational program that's become somewhat of a movement called Men Advocating for Real Change. Mm-hmm. And this is really, you know, intensive. It, it's more of a learning experience than a training program. And, you know, I've heard from from senior leaders, from CEOs who have been a part of this training at their organizations. And in particular, you know, I often cite uh, the president of Enbridge who's on uh, Almonico. He's just retiring, but he's on my on my advisory board. And, and he really talks about the transformational experience of, of doing this MARC training and how it affected him not only professionally, and he ended up, you know, having this training throughout his full organization, but personally as well. And it affected his family relationships and, you know, really better understanding, um, you know, the the inequities in our society and whether it would be related to to um, women in particular or in terms of many other issues related, you know, more intersectionality. And so this has been really, really powerful. We have data backing this up. We have we're doing constant research in this area. So the importance of male allies and the importance of intersectional allyship as well is, mm-hmm. is just so, so, so important. I think that piece on that male allyship is so important when you look like somebody like if you look at somebody like him who would be um you know one of the top canadian leaders for men in canada that the what he experiences and learns permeates through to his his colleagues in those sectors right and so i think that's just so important what advice would you give to maybe an employee who's really struggling or who doesn't have some of those systems at their workplace what advice would you give to them as if they want to see um, more action on things like EDI where they work? So that's a really great question. And I think one of the things that is difficult is I think some of the roots of DEI were, you know, as we all know, it was about, you know, celebration or, you know, like you think about back in the in the 90s or the 80s, and it was kind of like, you know, bring, you know, bring a meal from your, you know, your culture, your ethnicity to, you know, and it, and so they started off in kind of this celebratory mode. And the, the reality is, in terms of things like emotional tax, in terms of when you're talking about anti-racism, when you're talking about, you know, the, the really, really significant issues that exist in this area, there is a lot of discomfort. And I think that that's what kind of HR offices or CEOs aren't always prepared for. When you open up this discussion in an authentic way, you're going to have people who are going to say, well, do you realize that this is what I experienced? Or do you realize that I lived this microaggression um, at the workplace? And and people raise things um, that affects their mental health, that affects their well-being, that is really heavy. And it's not a celebration or it's not something that's a really, you know, positive conversation. So I think that's something that, you know, all leaders aren't necessarily ready for. So I think of terms of an employee and especially an employee who, who, you know, is living certain sorts of of sexism, racism, whatever it might be in the workplace, it can sometimes be really hard to to raise it. Um, You know, if it is a progressive organization, they'll actually welcome it. And I uh, spent the day yesterday at uh, 
Linamar in Guelph, and they've been on this DEI um, strategy for several years now. Uh, Linda Hasenfrance is their global CEO, and she's just a force and quite amazing. And they were giving examples of, you know, quite junior employees coming forward and talking about specific experiences that they're living and, you know, sexism, you know, it's a very male dominated industry or things that and, and raising these issues. And of course, at Linamar, they, they celebrate that they celebrate you know, people speaking up and, and using their voice, mm -hmm. but many organizations aren't always necessarily there. So um, it's, it's, it's something that's hard. I, I can't easily say, you know, talk to your manager about it, but I think that there is a way um, that we can use calling in um, as opposed to calling out, uh, you know, calling out can sometimes be, you know, confrontational and it can lead to anger and it can lead to polarization and calling in is, is often a bit more of a gentler way of helping to increase knowledge, increase awareness, of helping to have more compassion and empathy around the experiences of other people. So I think that would potentially be my advice. I don't know if it's the right advice per se, but that would be kind of a bit of my, my gut reaction around that. Okay. One of the other things I want to cover off is about COVID. And obviously, like during COVID, it impacted women in a different way. We saw all kinds of news articles about that. And now we're in a transition out of COVID. It's not gone, <laughs> but like a different viewpoint than we would have had months ago where we were still all in lockdowns. Um, so curious about kind of your thoughts like post COVID with women and, and what that looks like. Absolutely. I think you know, I, I'm a I'm a person who looks at the the glass half full naturally. I I think I hope that um, all people have actually developed a, a stronger level of compassion and empathy during COVID. You know, we've had we've all lived things in our home. We've all lived difficult moments. We've all had to 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 juggle many things. So I hope that we're we're leaving this pandemic or kind of approaching the you know a different reality in this pandemic with an increased level of compassion and empathy. Um, mm -hmm. That's my hope. I'm not sure if it's true, but it's <laughs> my hope. I think that we're seeing, um, you know, so many different things that are happening around people fully returning to work, you know, partially to work and, and all that that might be, yes. you know, there is still, you know, as we all know, and you in particular, Stephanie know about the weight um, that women carry in households. And um, unfortunately, that hasn't miraculously changed during uh, COVID. No. And I think that, uh, you know, we need to keep on talking about that because, um, you know, I think, you know, in terms of trends, we'll see women who are are keen to to work from home because they want to be doing a, uh, you know, a load of laundry between a meeting or they want to be getting dinner ready for that night. And, you know, that's just a huge weight on women. And it's 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 the impact of that is 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 huge. You know, I um have the the privilege of having a husband who has been a stay-at-home dad and that's been you know if without that I wouldn't have been able to do my PhD to have the roles that I have to travel uh, with work as I, I've had to to do and so I think we all have a lot has changed and yet a lot has stayed the same as well so unfortunately yes. and you know it also worries me in terms of you know if women do choose to stay home more and and, and appreciate that flexibility how will that affect power relations and promotion and things, you know, that might be happening more in person in the office. So mm -hmm. I think that all organizations need to have a clear plan around this. We have an opportunity to kind of recreate the future of work and, and how are we actually going to do it in an inclusive manner? 
Yes, I think I really appreciate those thoughts as, as someone who mostly works from home. Um, all of those things really uh, strike a nerve. And I, I feel very concerned about uh, I saw an article that came out that said, like, even for like men who work from home, they still do less than women who work from home. And this idea that like taking up, you know, you're taking up your extra time, maybe in the day, throwing on laundry or doing some of these things that that take away from your time focusing on your career. I think about my husband who goes to the office every day and he has the privilege, I would say, of focusing on his job for the whole day where I have kids coming home from school at some point or or things are in the house that I think, oh, I might as well just do do this while I have time or taking them to appointments. And and I, I see so many women really embracing the hybrid work or, or working from home or working from home part time. Um, and I just worry that it's it's actually going to make worse that role that women have struggled with where they're working full time, but still taking on a majority of household tasks or the exhaustion of the thoughts around some of those things. And I think, you know, there's a huge opportunity here around allyship, you know, and, and around kind of discussing these things and, and raising these things. Um, I can think of an example early in my career where um, there was a male leader who actually our kids were ironically at the same daycare. And we had this meeting that took place once a month. And, you know, he would frequently leave that meeting, you know, frankly, an hour before the end because he had to pick his kids up from daycare. And, you know, my kids were in the same daycare. I, you know, did backflips to ensure that somebody else was picking up my kids from daycare because that was a really important meeting. And I would watch him say, I'm going to have to go and take my, pick up my kids up from daycare. Not only did he leave the meeting an hour early, but he was celebrated as a male for going as a man for going to pick up his kids up from daycare. And I'm sitting there saying, you know, it wouldn't even cross my mind to be leaving this important meeting to go pick up my kids. You know, so yeah, so or they may have just, rolled your eyes at you versus maybe they wouldn't with him, right? Like exactly. So yeah. th those things are still existing. So how can we talk about them? How can we um be purposeful about, you know, what we're doing in our families, you know, yes. and raising our kids and in our workplaces as well. Uh, for the for the women listening who are struggling with this, I will give you one tip that I am working on. And that is trying not to do some of those things during your workday. Like, right? Like even the fact that you don't have commuting time maybe means you'll have extra time to throw those things in the laundry or whatever. But I find I, I get very distracted by it. And so I am trying to be better about this is my work time. So to each their own, but that's my tip of the Perfect. day. I love All it. right, let's jump into the, the rapid fire questions, Julie. What is one piece of advice you want to leave with listeners? One piece of advice is to, I think it's around what we talked about at the beginning in terms of taking chances and taking risks and really moving beyond your comfort zone to do something that, you know, whether it's related to a sport, whether it's with your work, whether it's with your family, I think that you know, really, uh, you know, taking that chance, I think is just so, so, so important. What is the best rule you ever broke? Oh, that's a good one. I think the best rule I ever broke, um, which was transformational in my career, I would say, is the idea of, of, of speaking truth to power. Mm -hmm. I think in my role of chief of staff, um, you know, it was the, the kind of role where you said, you know, your tie was crooked and that was a really bad speech. And, you know, this is, you know, to a person in a really senior position, yeah. but nobody was telling them that nobody was, nobody was real. You know, people were, you know, respectful and a bit at a distance with, with a senior leader. And I think that 
the role of being able to really be honest and open and frank um, is is really just a helpful uh, position to be in. And I think that that's uh, something that yeah, I think you know, obviously in a in a in a in a trustful manner. But I think yes. that that would be a, a broken rule that I that I still live by. <laughs> I'm smirking because I too have been that person. Can you name another woman that inspires you? Oh, so there's lots of women that inspire me. And frankly, in this job at Catalyst, every single day, I'm kind of blown away by these women. Um, You know, we're doing this interview at the beginning of Black History Month. So there's two women that I have met kind of since I've started at Catalyst. Uh, One is Carlin Persil and the other is Charlene Theodore. They're both um, advocates, um, activists, they're, they're teachers, they're feminists. Um, and they're intersectional advocates for gender equity. I admire both of them so much. Carlin is the CEO of KDM, KDPM Consulting, and she works with organizations and she works with individual women um, in a really meaningful and authentic manner on their kind of personal growth. Charlene Theodore is the chief inclusion officer at McCarthy's and runs this amazingly inspiring initiative called Inclusion Now. She was the first Black president of the Bar Association. So they are two women that I've met that, yeah, just really inspire me and, um, and just impress me in in so many ways. Amazing. Is there a podcast you're loving right now? So right now I'm listening to an audible. So I'm, I'm not on a podcast right now. I'm listening to, I've just started actually half of yellow sun on audible and, um, it's uh, written by a Nigerian author who I adore and, um, and it uh, takes place, prior to enduring the Nigerian civil war. And it's just, um, so I've just started it now, but that's my current listening habit. Okay. So would that also be the book that made you wiser? Do you have another one for that? So actually, yeah, so it's, it's related. I just actually read um, one of her books, which encouraged me to do the audible. So I'd read Americana. So it's by uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And so she's Nigerian and it's, it's really an interesting book that talks a lot about, um, racism, her experience of going from Nigeria to um, the US and really um, almost realizing her the, the racism and, and you know it would say it's about this character who who goes there to study and all of a sudden struggles with these issues of racism that she's never lived before in um, Nigeria. And um, you know she talks about kind of discovering what it is to be a black person and she she breaks it down in such a meaningful way that you're kind of, it's just, it's an absolute, it's an absolute just resource of information in terms of of actually understanding racism within a North American context. So I would highly recommend it. It's actually one of the most inspiring books I've ever read. Thank you so much for sharing that. I want to thank you for spending your time with us today and encourage folks to check you out online and Catalyst and we'll include that Um, information in the show notes, especially we didn't dive into it too much today, but some of that research um, that you shared and some of the things that are happening because people can really look at evidence-based research. And um, this isn't just somebody's opinion, but these are the facts of what's actually happening. And I think that is really important when it comes to these kinds of issues, which unfortunately at times are controversial. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thanks for all that you do to amplify voices like this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Women Don't Do That. I hope you feel inspired to do whatever it is you think you can't do. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 
stay connected on Twitter and Instagram at Women Don't Do That. I would love to have you join the conversation, so make sure you join our next Instagram Live. Find all our podcast and blog content at womendontdothat.com. Join me next time. 